Hello, and welcome to the Squeaky Clean Energy Podcast, brought to you by the North Carolina Sustainable Energy Association. I'm your host, Matt Abel. Squeaky Clean listeners, welcome to the 95th episode of the Squeaky Clean Energy Podcast, where we bring you the latest in North Carolina clean energy news, policy, and more every two weeks. On today's episode, when the story was seemingly dead, a D.C. Circuit Court issues a ruling sending the Southeast Energy Exchange market back to FERC. See what I did there? But before that story, a few short updates. It's official, Making Energy Work 2023 is on the calendar for November 2nd and 3rd in Raleigh. And just like last year, it'll be an opportunity to gather with many of your energy colleagues from across the Southeast to catch up on the latest clean energy policy and regulatory happenings. Registration is now open and sponsorship opportunities are going quick. So if you're interested in learning more about this year's conference, visit makingenergywork.com. And in exciting news, North Carolina recently reached an exciting milestone in which utility-scale solar generation surpassed coal generation in the state, reflecting the changing market dynamics in the electricity sector. In the first quarter of 2023, we saw solar jump up to 8% of total electricity generation, with coal taking a tumble from 37% in 2015 down to 7% earlier this year. This isn't the first time that solar has surpassed coal, In fact, we saw a brief change on the leaderboard in Q4 of 2021 and Q3 of 2022. Overall, the data points to the ongoing trend that solar is on pace to regularly surpass coal generation starting this year. Some of the success can be attributed to forward-thinking policies like the Renewable Energy Portfolio Standard and the significant decline in costs for solar deployment. However, it's important to note as well that we've seen a large amount of natural gas deployed in lieu of that coal generation, with proposals from some utilities to build more natural gas generation in the state moving forward. Overall, though, the future of energy generation in the state will be back in the spotlight this fall when the North Carolina Utilities Commission is set to kick off the next iteration of the carbon plan proceedings moving forward. So make sure to tune in to future episodes of the podcast where we'll talk about that very topic. Support for the Squeaky Clean Energy Podcast comes from Solarize the Triangle, a community-based group purchasing program for solar energy and battery storage, available to Triangle area homeowners, businesses, and nonprofit organizations. More information, along with free evaluation appointments, through September 30th can be found at solarizethetriangle.com. Okay, on to the show. Clean energy. Clean energy. Our next guest on the podcast has been a leading attorney within the Southeast on energy-related issues, helping to run point on strategies related to topics like the Southeast energy exchange market, which we'll be discussing at length today. Our guest is a staff attorney at the Southern Environmental Law Center's Chapel Hill office and works to promote federal, state, and local policies that treat rooftop solar customers and independent solar companies fairly to help accelerate a clean, just energy transition. Our guest is a graduate of Duke University and Columbia Law School and currently calls Durham, North Carolina home. Ladies and gentlemen, please welcome Maya Hutt of the Southern Environmental Law Center to the podcast. Maya, welcome to the pod. Thank you so much for having me, Matt. 
So to, to just jump right in uh, for our listeners, can you remind us what the proposed Southeast energy exchange market is and what it was intended to do, especially since it's been a few years since the proposal was, was first put out there and it's gone through a lot of, uh, of proceedings and processes over the past couple of years. Sure. Yeah. So you're right that there's there's been a lot going on. So the Southeast Energy Exchange Market, which I'm going to refer to as SEAM, and that's usually how you'll hear people talk about it with the acronym. So it's a wholesale energy trading market or platform really designed and controlled by some of the biggest monopoly utilities in the Southeast. And so that's Southern Company, Duke Energy, Dominion, Tennessee Valley Authority, those are the primary architects of SEAM. And they designed SEAM to do a couple of things. The first is that SEAM allows participants to make bids and offers to buy or sell energy at wholesale. And then there's an algorithm that looks at all the bids and looks at all the offers and matches them together. And so SEAM, what's a little unique about SEAM in the Southeast is that it allows those buyers and sellers to transact on a sub-hourly basis, which just means that the transactions are happening closer in time to when the energy is ultimately used. And that gives those market participants, if you can get into the market, more flexibility. And then the second thing that SEAM does is it creates a new transmission service. So... Transmission service is just how we move electricity around. And specifically what SEAM does is that it creates a free transmission service that is only usable for SEAM transactions. The reason that's significant is that generally when you're buying and selling energy, you're required to pay for transmission service. And that can get expensive. And so the fact that if you are a participant in SEAM, you can transact without paying anything versus everybody else who still needs to pay for transmission, that is like another benefit that SEAM creates for people who are allowed in. So, you know, you you mentioned wholesale market, and I think what comes to to folks' mind right away are some of the conversations that have been taking place uh, really in, in North Carolina, maybe over the past six months or so. And then of course, with within South Carolina, uh, around the, the VC Sumner plant failure down there, and and then the legislature introducing a market reform study bill. And, and so I think maybe a lot of our listeners are probably thinking of that, of, of wholesale market in that context, right, of allowing for more market participation, and helping to drive down ratepayer costs. So maybe what's the difference overall between what the SEAM proposal is and other market structures like an RTO or an EIM? Sure. So I guess to just take a quick step back, most of the United States already has wholesale markets, as you know. And so that's regional transmission organizations or energy imbalance markets. But In the Southeast, we haven't had one for a really long time, and that's partially contributing to why we have high energy bills and why it's hard for us to transition fully to renewables. And so when we're talking about an RTO or an EIM, one of the kind of hallmark characteristics is independent oversight. So there is an entity that is running the market And often there's even a second independent entity that's then monitoring the independent entity that is running the market. So there are 
it's really important in well-designed wholesale markets for there to be independent oversight. So that's something that Steam is missing and one of the reasons that it's not really true market reform in the way that folks have been pushing for. So for SEAM, the market rules are written and the governance is conducted by those same few monopoly utilities that created SEAM. And those monopoly utilities also get to act as participants transacting in SEAM. And so that's kind of a fox guarding the hen house kind of situation, which is exactly what generally well-designed wholesale markets are designed to avoid. And then I think one of the other primary differences between SEAM and an RTO or EIM is just scale and the amount of benefit that they accrue to consumers. So SEAM doesn't come even close to an RTO or an EIM in terms of increasing efficiency and maximizing trading opportunities and therefore benefiting customers by lowering costs. Under the very best case scenario that the proponents of SEAM have proposed, SEAM would save $1 per year for a customer. So that's not much. And frankly, we think that even that estimate is overly optimistic. In contrast, RTOs and EIMs save, you know, massive amounts of monies. And and so multiple studies have gone back and shown that organized markets in the Southeast would have net benefits in the range of hundreds of millions of dollars. And that's not something that SEAM is bringing to the table. So you, you've outlined some of the, the challenges. I, I am curious, like bigger picture, would, what would the implementation of a market like seem? And I know it, it's essentially been in operation for a little bit. Like what, what does that look like and how does that impact uh, the future generation mix within the utilities that are operating in, in, in this market? And is that part of the reason uh, that groups like SELC are opposed to seem overall? That is a great question, and I think you've kind of hit the nail on the head there. What SEAM does is if you are in, if you're a participant, then your transaction costs are lowered. If you are not a participant, you don't get that benefit. And then when you kind of layer that on top of the fact that the monopoly utilities who are by definition in SEAM and are in fact controlling SEAM, they are the ones who have massive gas plants, coal plants, fossil fuel infrastructure that is often expensive and that is polluting. The folks that are not included in SEAM, and SEAM has been operating for nearly a year and not a single independent power producer has participated. So I feel pretty confident in stating that these are the folks who are excluded. Those folks are generally independent power producers. And in the Southeast, that's usually solar. And so what happens is that when you are giving the entities that are generally relying on fossil fuel infrastructure a discount, and you're not giving that same discount to independent clean energy generators, you're tweaking the market and you're really tilting the playing field towards 
that dirty generation. And so in the long run, what it means is that that more expensive generation is online longer and that cost gets passed on to customers. And then from the environmental perspective, that means that we're getting pollution from fossil fuels for longer and we're reliant on facilities that are going to continue to you know, drive climate change and have all sorts of environmental impacts. You know, one of the the initial sort of rumblings that, that I was hearing, especially when the scene was initially proposed, right, is that this market structure was an opportunity for utilities like Southern Company or Georgia Power, who maybe have an excess of natural gas generation, to be able to trade some of that power into markets like North Carolina. And so allowing the utility to continue to monetize all of that excess natural gas generation and then continue to allow North Carolina uh, the ability to expand upon natural gas generation. So is that the case? And is that something that, you know, SELC has followed in the process of, of seeing moving forward through state commissions and at FERC as well? I think that's probably right. And that is the concern that we had as well. So one of the other problems it seemed that I haven't gotten into is the lack of transparency. And that makes it very hard to have a definitive answer to your question, because what we are expecting is that we would see more big transactions from folks who you know are have a lot of gas or coal generation but the reports that seem issues do not tell you what kind of generation is the source for those transactions all we see is the time of day and so we've been able to draw some conclusions from that like for example the fact that in the month of june there were more matches taking place at two in the morning than in the middle of the day suggests that that probably wasn't solar. And that was not an anomaly. When we went back and looked at the past year, SEAM has had as many, if not more, transactions occurring in the middle of the night as during the middle of the day. And if the utilities talking point of this is good for renewables was true, then we would expect to see that solar curve that you generally see where you know we're generating more in the middle of the day and as a result there'd be excess generation to put into seam but that's not what we see we're seeing middle of the night transactions so i can't tell you where that comes from but i know it's not solar and and that runs so counter to what we're seeing with other sort of market structures like a, a pjm for example where it's very transparent uh, as to what transactions are happening during what time of the day so SEAM has, has followed a, a fairly lengthy journey uh, between, you know, commissions like the North Carolina Utilities Commission, FERC, and now most recently, and part of the reason why we're talking now, uh, a federal appeals court. So can you provide a little bit of history here of the regulatory journey this proposal has traveled through over the past uh, couple of years? Absolutely. So we have to go all the way back to 2020, which is when the utilities first announced creation of SEAM and said that it was their intent to file with FERC. And I think it's worth noting at the outset that none of these stakeholders in the North Carolina clean energy environment were included in developing SEAM. It just kind of showed up one day and we were told, this is it, here's a webinar explaining it. And there was not an opportunity for you know, the people who would be 
impacted by that market to actually shape its development. So December 2020, we found out that the same utilities plan to file at FERC. So NCSEA and SDLC, and SDLC was representing the Sierra Club and Southern Alliance for Clean Energy here, we filed a joint protest with the North Carolina Utilities Commission. And the reason we filed that protest was because the joint dispatch agreement between Duke Energy Carolinas and Duke Energy Progress basically requires that before entering into some sort of affiliate agreement, they give the commission a heads up. And that same JDA requires DEC and DEP to get permission, explicit permission from the North Carolina Utility Commission if they're doing any sort of joint planning or coordination of transmission. So we believed and continue to believe that steam falls into that category. And so we asked the North Carolina Utility Commission to take a look. So what happened there was initially the commission issued an order preventing DEP and DEC from filing their proposal with FERC until an oral argument could be held. So they kind of put the brakes on it. But after the oral argument, the commission ended up dismissing our protest and said SEAM is just facilitating bilateral contracts. It doesn't involve joint planning or coordination of transmission, and therefore the JDA's regulatory conditions were not triggered. That was their conclusion there. So with that North Carolina piece set aside, utilities went ahead and they filed two components of that make up SEAM with FERC. So they filed a proposed SEAM agreement, which lays out how the market would work. And then they filed the SEAM tariff, which is the open access transmission tariff that actually lets SEAM transactions occur. So SELC representing NCSEA and several other environmental and nonprofit organizations from the Southeast filed protests before FERC. And we did that as part of a coalition, national environmental groups and with clean energy industry associations. And we went through an approximately year long process in front of FERC. And during that process, FERC asked for more information from the utilities multiple times. It kind of indicated a little bit of skepticism in some of the things that were being said about SEAM. And then ultimately what happened is the commission, which only had four commissioners at the time, deadlocked. So two commissioners thought that the SEAM agreement was lawful and should be approved, and two commissioners thought that it was unlawful. And because of a relatively new provision of law that has not really come into play in the past very often, that 2-2 split means that the the proposal automatically goes into effect. So we've been referring to that 2-2 split as like the deadlock order. It's not really an order in the traditional sense, but that was what allowed the SEAM agreement to go into effect. Then a few weeks after that, the SEAM tariff, so that component that actually lets those transactions occur, that was approved in a majority order. That was 3-1. And the difference there was that Chairman Glick, who had voted against the same agreement, 
his position was that if all those errors in the SEAM agreement were now off the table, he felt like he couldn't stop the tariff. So he switched his vote and that got a majority approval. So that's the FERC saga. So I'll move into the the DC circuit (laughs) part of the journey. We thought that both the deadlock order and the majority order approving the tariff had some serious problems and did not comply with the Federal Power Act or Order 888, which is FERC's kind of seminal order on open access to transmission. And so we filed a lawsuit against FERC in the D.C. Circuit saying that they had failed to comply with the law by approving SEAM. So that was nearly a year ago now. And we went through briefing in front of the D.C. Circuit. We had an oral argument back in March. And then on the 14th, just last week, we got an order from the D.C. Circuit agreeing with us and finding that several parts of those orders didn't comply with the law and remanding and vacating the tariff orders from SEAM. So that's kind of where we are right now. Can you tell us a little bit more about what was specifically in that ruling and and what the opposition was to the, the order coming from FERC? Okay, so there are two issues that the court decided to reject the approval of SEAM based on. So both of them are related to Order 888, which I think I mentioned earlier, and that's the order that FERC issued that says, essentially, everyone should have open access to transmission. So a monopoly utility that is providing itself transmission needs to provide itself transmission on the same terms that it provides transmission to an independent power producer. So kind of leveling that playing field. So within Order 888, one requirement is that any tariff must be consistent to or superior to the pro forma tariff. So that's the default tariff that FERC puts out there. That is the floor for any tariff. And what the D.C. Circuit found is that those tariffs implementing SEAM were not consistent with or superior to the pro forma tariff because they excluded many bilateral trading partners who were already trading with some of these utilities and could not transact under SEAM because they were excluded by the participation requirements. Specifically, they were outside of SEAM's footprint and therefore not allowed to participate. And what the court said is that those 65 approximately bilateral trading partners, they could transact outside of the SEAM market in the existing kind of state of things. And they are transacting, but they cannot transact in SEAM. So that means that the SEAM tariff must be inferior in some way to the existing open access tariff. And what the court also said is that FERC needed to explain why this restriction existed, why the utilities couldn't have done something else that did include these folks who were being excluded, and ultimately determined that that deviation from the pro forma tariff had not been justified. So that was one violation of Order 888. The second one 
is related to this concept called a power pool. So power pools are essentially when several transmission owning utilities combine to pool their transmission resources and they give a discounted or special rate to themselves and any members and they do not give that rate to anyone else. And if that sounds familiar, it's because it's what Steam sounds like. It is Steam. But specifically there, what the court found is that unpancaked rates. So let me take a step back from pancaking. I can explain pancaking and unpancaking. <laughs> it's a term of art. So as energy is traded across multiple transmission owners territory, usually you have to pay a fee to use those transmission lines. And if you're crossing multiple folks' territory, that means you're paying them each a fee and that's accumulating and that is called pancaking. So what SEAM does is it says, if you are a member of SEAM, you get to transact for free and that is called unpancaking. And so order 888 had specifically said, unpancaked rates are an example of a discounted rate, which shows that something is a power pool and the court did not address that point. And so that was the second violation. Okay, so now with that most recent order, you know, what what does that mean for Seam moving forward right now? Like what is is Seam dead or is Seam going to continue to operate as it currently is? Like what what do we expect to happen with this market moving forward from here? I can tell you what the order says and then I can tell you what procedural steps we expect going forward. So what the order says is that FERC's authorization of the tariff, and the tariff is what lets SEAM operate, that that is vacated. And what that means is that after the court's mandate issues, and we expect that to be in about 52 days from the date of the order, when the mandate issues, these SEAM utilities will no longer have a tariff that they can do SEAM transactions on. And so that means that those transactions have to stop. They don't have the ability to continue. The other piece is that agreement, the SEAM agreement that sketches out SEAM. So that piece is actually going back to FERC because FERC refused to consider our requests for rehearing and has now been directed to go back and consider them. And there's a side story about timing that I could get into if you're curious, but at the, the kind of long story short is that FERC now has some of those same questions back in front of it for the agreement. Even if they approve the agreement, that does not mean that the tariffs are suddenly approved. So for the foreseeable future, unless there is an appeal or a request for rehearing, SEAM cannot operate after that mandate goes out. And for additional context around around FERC for listeners, does FERC, in terms of the actual sitting commissioners, look the same today that it did when that last decision was made? It does not. So there are four commissioners again, but they are not the same four commissioners. So Chairman Glick has rotated off, and now we have Chairman Phillips who has rotated on 
and we are still missing a commissioner. And so what that means is that we have four commissioners who could potentially split 2-2 again. We don't know what they'll do, but there is potential for the situation that happened over a year ago now to occur again. It's also possible that they reach a majority order. We just don't know. So at the end of the day, what I'm hearing is the seam saga is not over yet. We have not closed the final chapter on this book. Uh, and and for folks listening in, to stay tuned to what's going on at FERC as there's sure to be more updates to come. And we'll be sure to provide those updates here on the podcast. Anything else, Maya, that you wanted to make sure that we're, we're flagging for listeners related to recent developments on, on seam and what they should be attuned to moving forward? The only thing I'd add is that you know, the, the saga is not over. Things will continue. But this was a very significant win. It is not easy to, you know, beat FERC in front of the D.C. Circuit. And it is not easy to beat some of the biggest utilities in our country in front of any court. So the fact that the court came out and reasserted some really fundamental principles about open access and about regulation of monopolies is really significant. And FERC is going to have to take a look at that if and when they reconsider any seam proposal that has been reanimated, they are going to have to address the fact that the court did say that they got it wrong the first time and that there are aspects of seam that are unlawful. It is reassuring, right, that that the courts are taking a critical eye at, at what, you know, large monopoly utilities are proposing and impacts on ratepayers here within the Southeast and specifically impacts on our ability to meet carbon reduction goals, uh, which are really important. And uh, instead of this being, you know, one additional roadblock or barrier in the way the courts, you know, are, are, are looking at and kind of reopening this, this case here. So Maya, I, I just wanted to thank you specifically for all of your work that you've been doing on this issue and, and taking the time out this afternoon to join us on the podcast, to tell us everything that's been going on and provide us the latest updates on SEAM. So, so Maya, thank you for, for joining us on this episode of the Squeaky Clean Energy Podcast. Of course, my pleasure. In our conversation with Maya, it's evident that this court ruling was a necessary step to ensure a level playing field for electricity generation within the Southeast by preventing the unfair tipping of the scales in favor of incumbent utilities over that of independent power producers which, as we know, would lead to a missed opportunity of lowering rates in the interim through renewable sources like utility-scale solar. We'll see how this process continues to play out over the coming couple of months, and we'll be sure to keep our listeners up to speed on the status of SEAM moving forward. This episode of the Squeaky Clean Energy Podcast is brought to you by Solarize the Triangle, a community-based group purchasing program for solar energy and battery storage. The program now has more than 12 governments participating here in the Triangle area, allowing homeowners from all across the region to participate and see significant savings on the cost of installation via the power of group purchasing. So if you're interested in installing solar on your home, there's never been a better time. Visit solarizethetriangle.com for more information today. And on that note, you know the deal. Let's stay in touch. 
have ideas for future episodes or a burning clean energy question you want to see covered, send me a note at mattable at energync.org. And if you enjoy the podcast, please consider donating or sponsoring today to help ensure we can continue to bring you great content like today's episode. Sponsorship opportunities and more information can be found at energync.org forward slash the squeaky clean energy podcast. And episode 95 of the squeaky clean energy podcast is in the books. But before you leave, don't forget to rate, subscribe, and share the pod on whatever platform you're listening in from. Sharing this podcast with your network and growing the friends of the pod helps us get just a little bit closer to our shared vision of a clean energy economy for North Carolina. All right, that's it. See y'all later.